This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Yeah, so narrative nonfiction takes a lot of time because we have to get inside the minds and the hearts and the experiences of people who may not even want to talk about or think about what they've been through, whatever it might be. And then once you've done that, you've emerged with a story that has the suspense and the fears, the all the emotions that go along with the decision or whatever the circumstance might be, along with the plot line of their lives. And then by the time you come out of that with the context of the world that they were living in, you come out with this full story, but it's the closest that you will ever get to being another person because these are real people. And the people have decided to make this great gift to, to humanity. I think anyone who participates in a narrative nonfiction project is making a gift to humanity by allowing other people to see and to feel and to hear and to be with them in those really difficult often moments as they're going through that. And it's the closest you get to being another, an actual other person. Isabel Wilkerson is one of the great writers of her generation. With her first book, The Warmth of Other Sons, about the Great Migration, and her new book, her second book, Cast, about global systemic racism, the Pulitzer Prize winner explains what it is to be Black with a depth and a perception and a beauty of writing that is rarely seen. These two books are towering achievements, and her writing style is gorgeous. I love her work. And I love talking to her. It's an honor to dig into what went into making these two amazing books. You'll get half of this conversation for free. For the whole thing, go to patreon.com slash show and subscribe for just $5 a month. And trust me, it's worth it because you get Isabel Wilkerson. And trust me, it's worth it because you get me and Isabel Wilkerson, Malcolm Gladwell, and so many other amazing people. Okay, let's go. It's Isabel Wilkerson on Torre Show. The novel analogy feels very apt because at times I feel like I'm in a novel. As I said, I can see these people. I can almost taste their food and I can feel their pain. And that's sort of a big part of why for me, for a lot of people, your books are connecting so deeply because it's not just the informational level and the research, but you're you're hitting our hearts with the quality of the writing. Well, I, I really appreciate that. And that's why it takes um, 
it takes you actually when you're doing this kind of work, you're doing the work of multiple disciplines. You know, you are doing the research that a journalist might do, a historian might do, um, an ethnographer might do. All of those disciplines come into play. I've actually people have actually told me that, um, you know, that they will say, you know, I, I got to know these people and I really love them. And, you know, I, I just, you know, when, when I got to the end of the book, I started to tear up because they were just fascinating people to know, right? They would just, they felt as if, as if they knew them. And so that means that mission is accomplished, that people, um, particularly when people can find themselves rooting for someone who their society has said they have nothing in common with. I mean, that is really the beauty of and the power of what can happen when narrative nonfiction is doing what it, what it needs to do to reach mm-hmm. the I'm curious, just as a writer, because Warmth was such a big book, and I want to spend most of the time talking about cast, but Warmth is such a big book. It feels from the outside like it changed your life, like, like you know, like your you got to look at your life like pre-publication and post-publication. Is that how you see it? You know, it's so hard to separate out what has happened from just from what has happened. In other words, I don't know of what else would have happened. I mean, it just, it took off. It did what it needed to do. It kept me on the road. Um, you know, people would come up to me and they would say, you know, I, I read this book. I had no idea that these things happened. I had no idea. You know, I cried when I, when, you know, Dr. Foster, when I got to the point where Dr. Foster passed away, they would just tell me the things that, how it affected them. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the, you know, biggest compliments I, I saw was some somebody was interviewed in Jacksonville, Florida. It was a woman, a, a white woman, uh, who who was asked why she was out there at the protest uh, after George Floyd. And you know, I, I had nothing to do. I mean, I did not even know this happened. I just ran across this by accident. And the person said, the woman said, I I, I wouldn't have been out here normally, but I just read the Warmth of the Suns. I just read this book called The Warmth of the Suns, and I knew I had to be here. And, you know, that, that is um, extraordinary for a work of history. It's, it's a work of history. When you do the kind of work that I do where you're making this huge investment of time, it's, a, it's not just a labor of love, it's a leap of faith because you don't know where the 15 years are going to lead you. You just don't know. And then to have years after the fact, a woman making reference to it. She wasn't, you know, she didn't call my name. Uh, she didn't, you know, she didn't, I, I, there, was, there was no shout out to me. I wasn't looking for that. I wasn't expected it. It's just that it's one of the additional, um, you know, consequences, you know, beautiful things that happens when, when you do something that touches people's hearts, not just their minds, but their hearts. Well, I mean, you know, warmth of other sons is your other name, right? <laughs> like <laughs> we all know we're talking about you, you know, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I pray to run into somebody who's reading my book on the trade and you're like, you know, on CNN, like, I'm out here because I read that book and it just changed my life. And it, it, it changed a lot of people's lives. It changed a lot of people's minds and their deep understanding. And I think this cast has a similar potential because there is so much information in here and so much perspective in here that yeah. just rewires your brain to see the world in this different way. Um, can you talk about, I mean, you started to talk about the connection between the two books. Can you talk a little bit more about, because th- in a way this book grows out of the warmth of other sons. Is that right? It does. Uh, you know, I, I was using the word cast 
in the warmth of other suns. And interestingly enough, even though it's a word that is not a, one that's that familiar to us as Americans, you know, readers just went along with the flow of it. I mean, nobody said, you know, what is this word in here for? Everybody just sort of went along with the flow because, uh, because the text, um, you know, reinforced or, or showed that this was an, an accurate word. I mean, it was, it was a world in which it was actually against the law for a black person and a white person to just play checkers together. It was a world where the, 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 the Bible, there was a black Bible and a white Bible in courtrooms throughout the South. I mean, the very word of God was segregated. You know, like the same sacred object could not be touched by hands of different races. That's how seriously invested the Jim Crow regime was in keeping people not just segregated, but with such strong boundaries to protect the purity of one group versus the pollution of the other. I mean, that that's those are cast terms. And so readers went, you know, readers just went with the flow of the, the narrative and, and didn't didn't seem to pause. They just seemed to, to, to go along with it. This book is uh, a deeper inquiry into what that word means. So what, is, what does it mean to actually live in a caste system? And of course, many of the things that have happened in recent years have reminded us of the some of the aspects of caste that, that, that still shadow us. I mean, I, I would say starting with, with uh, Trayvon Martin, you know, who was, I mean, it's hard to believe it was, that was 2012. That's how long this, you know, this, this more recent awareness from my perspective has been there to connect us to this underlying infrastructure that we might not otherwise see. And that was, you know, not to, not to scale everything to the one of those sons, but that was two years after it'd been out. And so that was a reminder because, you know, a caste system is essentially an artificial arbitrary hierarchy in which, uh, in which, you know, you're ranked, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a system of human graded ranking in which human value is assessed on the basis of, of whatever the metric is that determines your ranking. And it determines, you know, your standing, uh, your stature, the respect accorded you, benefit of the doubt accorded you, or suspicion accorded you, um, resources uh, uh, that, that are available to you or are not available to you, assumptions of competence and intelligence and beauty, even all these things are accorded based upon one's placement in the caste system. And one of the things that's, that is uh, characteristic of a caste system is the idea of policing of the boundaries, of, of being aware, hyper-aware in some, place, some cases, of where a person is supposed to be, what a person is supposed to be, who is it appropriate to be in this space versus that space. And so if someone is stopped in the middle of their day and surveilled, or the police called on them for sitting at a Starbucks waiting for a friend, or walking down the street, as was Trayvon Martin, to, you know, with you know, after having bought some Skittles, trying to get back, but not back home, but not seen as being um, as, be, as being out of his place in that location. And then someone feeling the right to come in and surveil, police the boundaries for that person. That is what is that's what caste is. I mean, caste. If you think about caste as the apparatus that holds your the fractured bones in place you know, the, the mold that holds you in place, the cast that holds your bones in place. Cast is, is associated with the idea of people staying in their place. In this Jim Crow South, people would, would say, well, they, they have to be shown that they have to stay in their place. And I stepping mean, out of your place would breach the caste system and threaten it. I mean, one of the moments that really 
hurt me in a good way is when you're talking about the use of violence and terrorism to maintain caste. And so it's been systematically used throughout history from whipping to police brutality to keep us in place. Yeah. That is, that is, well, there are eight pillars of caste that I described, as as you know, if you read the book, which could be a book unto itself, eight pillars Mm -hmm. alone. And each one of them plays its part in, 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 in first justifying through, you know, uh, through religious belief systems or the laws of nature that there's one group that is destined to be at the very top. And usually it's the group that's interpreting the, the text, you know, obviously. <laughs> and, that, and, and that other people are destined to be at the bottom of that hierarchy. So that's one thing that's justifying, justifying whatever it is that they feel they need to do. And then there are such things as it's inherited, you can't escape, you're born into it, which gives a fixed nature to it. And then there's endogamy, which is intermarriage, the ban of, against intermarriage, which is which is which runs as a through line in, in all these different hierarchies. And that has uh, that has consequences beyond just the fact that two people who fall in love are, are prevented from being able to do what human beings should be able to do. It, it has ramifications beyond that, because what it does is it curates a society. It reinforces those very lines that have been claimed as distinctive to make one group presumably superior to another group. Then it also further um, creates a wedge between groups that naturally might have been there, but a wedge because the people, particularly those in the dominant group, have no stake, no material or emotional, uh, any stake at all in the lives or well-being of those who are deemed beneath them, who they are told are so inferior that they're not to, you know, marry them, not to, that went along also with not to be involved with them romantically or even make any gesture that would signify that. So all of these, all of these pillars have much greater impact than just the thing alone. And so, you know, you could go and talk about each one of them, but, but all of those are, are, are ways that uh, uh, a hierarchy can create justify, rationalize, enforce, and then reinforce the hierarchy that's been created. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. 
Each of NPR's Black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. So somebody might say, okay, in America, we have slavery, we come out of that, you know, we still have a lot of those things. I mean, I didn't know you talk about, you know, the, that shortly after slavery, it was prescribed that you basically black people could only work in the fields and the right. laws were structured such that you could, you couldn't start a store. You couldn't no. start a business. Um, and I had never known that we were constrained economically in those ways, but and I'm sort of answering my own question, but is this a conscious thing that there are people who are sitting atop systems and, and communities and saying, these are the ways we're going to maintain this caste system? Uh, or, or, it is, or is it something that just happens? And even when we get to modern days when it would be very difficult to have laws that perpetuate these things, is it so baked in that it just perpetuates itself or is it still a conscious layer of society saying these are the ways we're going to make it harder to, uh, to, you know, harder to escape this lower caste? What you described is a very power of hierarchy is that it was initially, obviously it evolved. So it was conscious. They made conscious decisions about when they made laws that said, uh, a, a white man, a white person, for example, it was having to be a man, but a white person could not have, uh, you know, what they would maybe call sexual congress with a person of a different, you know, with an African. Uh, that that there were that there they 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 evolved laws that were conscious. They were conscious as they were doing it. Um, what the what the uh, the penalties and punishment would be for someone who crossed that pillar of caste as they were creating them. So it took several decades in order to refine and to hone and to create the caste system that all of us have inherited. Once it's in place, and once you have all the justification of the Bible itself, the story of Noah and his son, Ham, who happened to have happened to uh, see him unclothed and thus was cursed, and African-American, people of African descent, 
were seen as the descendants of Ham and thus they were fit to or expected to, destined to be the servants of all, that once you had that um, essentially embedded into the, 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 the entire culture, and we're talking about before there was the United States of America, we're talking about the 17th century, the 1630s, the 1640s, the 1650s, in colonial Virginia and Maryland along the Chesapeake. So many centuries ago, this became, this became the hardened, um, expected legal framework for the caste system that we have all inherited. Over time, as people have lived out um, these, these inequities, lived out this hierarchy, it comes to be expected. It's passed down through generations. It's passed down through uh, the culture, even in, in, in you know, more recent times, uh, commercials to billboards to who gets killed first traditionally in a movie. I mean, to, in, every, in every aspect of our society in ways that we don't even see it anymore because it's just the way, the, it's just the way that the culture is set up. You know, in, in previous, not that long ago, within the lifespan of the very oldest Americans, there were, you know, there were all of these, you know, if you, if you got syrup for the breakfast table, it was actually of an Aunt Jemima. You know, it was like a Mrs., there's this, this uh, uh, syrup called Mrs. Butterworth that was literally a mammy. Literally a mammy. And so this yep. is the way, I yep. mean, this is the people alive today got their, you know, put this syrup that they had to take the bottle and maybe grab her around the waist or around her neck or something. And that's what children put grab on. Grab her around her neck. So you're strangling yeah. her to get the syrup yeah, yeah, out of the bottle. Literally, literally. And so this is the way, this is a subconscious way that people are absorbing the messages of who belongs where in a society. So I, I you know, that, that's the power of it. It's not conscious anymore. It doesn't have to be conscious anymore. And that's the reason why I think that the, this, this phenomenon, the idea of thinking of it this way, this language allows us to see ourselves differently, see how we interact with one another differently, to see our, ourselves through a different lens that goes beneath what we think we see, what we've been trained to see. Because once you've used language for so long, then you almost can't hear it anymore. And this sort of, it sparks the neurons to think differently and to see, I, I call this book an x-ray of our country. You know, I view myself as a, um, like a, the, the, the building inspector who comes in and, you know, with the flashlight and is looking all in the corners and, you know, you see these stress cracks and you see that this beam is a little askew. I mean, that's what I view myself as coming in as. And you, you know, you're looking at yourself differently because you're, you have different, a different framework you know, through which to understand ourselves and how we got to where we are. You remind me of the the sign and the tweet that I've seen going around a lot the last couple of months that racism is so deeply embedded in the framework of America that when we protest racism, they think we're protesting America because they can't separate the two. Um, this, what does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, 
I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Toray. Thrivemarket.com slash Toray. On March 16th, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. I found, the, I found warmth to be hopeful. They were moving, they were escaping, they were getting out of the difficult situation. I found this book to be sad, and that is not in any way a criticism. Um, I felt the understanding of the point that it was a caste system felt almost permanent and like you can't get out of it. Do you do you see that? Did you feel this book to be somewhat sad? Do you understand that reaction at all? I do. I do. Um, I appreciate what you said about warmth, because there are some people who believe that warmth is sad, and I don't see it as sad as all, at all. I mean, I don't. I, I don't see it as sad. Um, this one is, it, it's a difficult history. I mean, it, it just is. It's a difficult history. Uh, you know, again, if you are an inspector going into, you know, the, the, the basement of a house, um, there could be a lot of things in there that you'd rather not think about. And that's sort of what this is this is dealing with. But ultimately, if you don't go in there and look and see what's going on, you're going to have to deal with it anyway. I mean, we were we are dealing with these things, whether we choose to understand them, study them, study them, and address them or not. We're dealing with them. We can see it in the news. We you know saw it with, with you know with what happened with George Floyd and before that Ahmaud Arbery and, and Breonna Taylor. I mean, it's just you know the list is so so long and. We are dealing with this whether we discuss it or not, whether we choose to look at it or not. And so I, mean, I, I, I yeah. just want to ultimately think of this as, as hopeful because it's getting, it's looking at the reality. You know, and if you don't look at the reality, if you don't know what is going on, you can't even begin to try to fix it. I mean, I think perhaps part of the difference for me, warmth is a microscope of America and this is a truly global study. You keep bouncing off of America, India, and Nazi Germany. And it makes me feel like, oh, th this is just embedded in human society. And we just happen to be the low rung of the totem pole here in America. Uh, you know, and I, I don't know, I'm sure you've had the experience of we when we go to Africa, we are seen as higher because they call us white because yeah. we, you know, well, you have one, you know, one white person eight generations ago in Africa, you're white, and they look at you as higher. And so, you, you know, so it's arbitrary. Or just um, being American, too. Yes, yes. But, mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, the global nature of this book is also really interesting. Um, 
and and really illuminating. I'm curious as to why you in your like you 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 base it around this triptych of casts, and I was kind of going, oh, well, where's South Africa, right? Because is not apartheid doing the same things? Was why did you decide to leave that example out? So. Uh... You know, I decided, as you can see from the work that I do, I really prefer to go deep rather than wide. I mean, and the reason is because I, I want to be able to hold your attention. I want it to be, I want it to be readable. I want you to be able to get deep into it. Um, and I felt that, uh, you know, keeping it to, and also three is a kind of a, it's a classical framework, you know, a three act play and that sort of thing. So it, I just, it seemed to be sufficient to be able to tell the story that I was seeking to, because ultimately this is about America. It's about our country. It's about our history. It's about what can we learn from other places. Now, there are references to South Africa, of course, and um, there's a, 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 uh, an incredible uh, series of books written by George Fredrickson, the sociologist and historian who did an incredible uh, work on looking at the United States and South Africa, and I highly recommend that to anybody who's interested in the topic. I reference him uh, in, in this book, um, but I chose to focus in on these two because one, um, uh, the three rather, India and and uh, and also Germany. Because with India, if you're going to talk about caste, we have to talk about India. So that was that was automatic. And then it was after Charlottesville that I started to look at at uh, Germany because. Because after Charlottesville, you know, we could see all of the symbolism merging with the rallyers, the protesters. You know, they they were bringing in the Nazi symbolism, symbolism of the Confederacy. They made the connection between Germany and the United States. Germany, you might say, and the Confederacy, and that, you know, that brought my attention to to Germany to see what is it that they had done in the years since World War II to reconcile with and atone for what had happened in World War II. How do they educate citizens? How do they educate students? How do they, how do they present what had happened? What did, what did they do with that? And the discovery, you know, I was stunned to, to, make, to see all these connections. But of course, I was even more stunned to discover the connection between the United States uh, in the years leading up to the Third Reich, the, you know, the German eugenicists who were turning to and consulting with American eugenicists in the years leading up to the to the Nazi uh, takeover, mm. and the fact that there were American eugenicists who were writing these books that would then, you know, were big sellers in Germany. I mean, this is just you know just stunning to see. And of course, the Nazis needed nobody to teach them how to hate. I mean, they needed nobody to teach them. <laughs> but they actually they sent people to the United States. They sent researchers to the United States to study what. Had the Jim Crow state, the South in particular, the rest of the country too, done to subjugate uh, African Americans in this country? They actually studied the United States. <laughs> that is mind blowing. I am curious. I'm curious about what you just said in terms of you're making major structural decisions on the book fairly recently. You said it was a 10 year project, but Charlottesville yeah. was. Two years ago? Uh, so I'm 2017. 2017. Uh, well, you turned it in last year, I'm sure, yeah. right? So uh, this early this year. <laughs> early early this year. Well, yeah. I want to hear about 10 years, how like how much of that is pure research 
how much of that is sort of outlining, how much of that is actually sitting at the computer, or is it a legal pad? Do you do you handwrite, or is it all computer? Like, how much of the time is it actual writing time? Oh, that's a that's such a great question. Thank you, because that actually answers the question you were asking before. Is it like I said, the the main focus was India. Much of my focus, first of all, my my focus was on what had been said in the United States about caste. That like that was the first thing that I'm looking at um, in terms of research, and then India, and then Charlottesville happened, and then that was okay. You, you got to include. You have to include. I mean, that was I, I wasn't considering Germany until then. Um, but the, the the ratio is very high percentage of research to writing. Most of it is research. And then you're racing with the writing because mo- most of it is a research. I mean, you can't even, in, narr- in nonfiction in general, as you well know, and then a narrative in, in particular, you don't have anything to write until you've done the research. I mean, you, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> you you got to see all the research before you can start the writing. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why, you know, you have all this there, you know, that you're pulling from, that you're drawing from, that you're mining and and pulling and putting in perspective and putting in order because you you can't start the writing until you have really most of the research done. For more from me and Isabel Wilkerson, join us over at patreon.com slash show. Thanks so much to Isabel for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, Gerville Calais, Michelle, Brenda Cox, Kathy F., and Kina Murphy. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. And check out my newsletter, Black Minds Matter. Go to blackmindsmatter.substack.com. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhull. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Chanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. Hold up. 